electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We shall live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square. This is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action. Shares of Nike, that stock moving well off its lows following earnings. The company's call is just kicking off. We're dialed in. We'll bring you any big headlines. Plus, Salesforce surging, the cloud stock topping the tape as the company ups guidance. We'll break down how our traders are playing this name and later heavy lifting. Steve is taking the mound tonight for a fast pitch. Why he says this fitness stock is about to pump some serious gains. We start off with a major rally on Wall Street. The S&P 500 jumping over a percent. The Dow rising more than 500 points. All three major averages erasing their losses for the week. The S&P is now up Three and a half percent from intraday lows on Monday, leading the gains today. Energy and financials both up more than two percent. XLF Financial ETF seeing its biggest jump since July 9th. So what was behind today's big move? Is this momentum for real, Guy? Hoping you would tell me there, Melms. Is this a momentum? I think on both sides it's for real. And I think you would acknowledge that You know, this is the market that we found ourselves in. The sell-offs have been met by extraordinary buying. We've seen this again. We've seen it for a while. I don't think any of us were too um, over-the-moon bearish on Monday. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people thought it would be a one, two-day event at most. I said we will see 4,100 in the S&P at some point. I'll stand by that. I did think we'd bounce. I don't think we'd bounce to this magnitude, but here we are. But what I will say that continues to work, financials, we've been behind. They've gotten off the mat. And look at some of these oil service names today. I know Tim talks about this a lot. Really big moves. And at levels we haven't seen in quite some time, I think those names are poised for a breakout. It's like all the fears that we had on Monday suddenly dissipated. And plus, we have higher yields today, Tim, which really, uh, you know, supercharged the bank trade. You, you have some sense also, uh, I think there's better understanding of where the Fed is and, and, and ultimately more comfort that a November tapering is something that's going to be rate positive and that rate positive is ultimately a panacea for certain parts of the subsectors that really have been under pressure since maybe mid to late June. And, and I think you have a case here, either the market is applauding inflation or there's some sense that we can run hotter and that if anything, we were concerned about deflation and that we were concerned about COVID Delta you know, 19 dynamics that I think are things that we, we really were questioning how strong this economy could be going into the fourth quarter. Um, I, you know, we went into this week, so even as we started to heat up on the downside uh, with a lot of pain that we'd already seen across transports, industrials, uh, commodities, and, and even some energy. So I, I think the fact that these were sectors that were already overdone, it's not surprising to see them move higher. But look, a, a move in Brent, which is now uh, ext- you know, fresh 52-week highs, but almost at three-year highs, 
when I think we're going to be at a deficit into mid-next year in terms of uh, where we're coming on supply. Very good. And I'll say it one more time because I've said it for, for nine months. These companies are run differently than they were five years ago. That's why this is not just a trade. I think investing in the energy sector at a time where you are seeing some inflation, the dollar also got out of the way at least for today. And that's part of this trade as well. What were you trading today, Pete? A lot more energy. I mean, I've been trading energy, it seems like, now for almost a year. It's been absolutely incredible. To Tim's point, he's talking about all the different reasons. How about just the fact that it's gone from $38 all the way up over to 73 I mean, it's been on an absolute incredible run when you look at the price of crude. And I'll tell you, it's those beta names, Mel. It just continues to come each and every day. And I look at all these different option trades, and it's just consistent almost on a daily basis where we'll probably have 20%, 30% of what we see is us coming up somewhere in the beta world of energy. And so it just continues to help us be there. Now, I, I'm not quite as excited about uh, holding the stocks, but I'm certainly going to trade those options because the creativity that we've got there is – the implied volatilities have remained very, very low. They give you a great opportunity when stocks like these make those kind of moves like they did today, which they've done many times. I always call them the beta names because they certainly do work at a much different pace when you look at those names versus a Chevron or an Exxon or some of those. But I'll tell you, even Chevron and Exxon have been really moving nicely of late. I still think energy, I'm looking at these financials, obviously they really do take a uh, page from the 10-year constantly, but the reality is some of those names had an absolutely incredible rebound now. Take a look at a Capital One, 175 pulls all the way back and now it's back up pushing towards 170 once again. There's just a lot of different storylines I think playing within the markets that we're in right now. Yeah, what were you doing today, Steve? So, well, it's the it's a value trade for me. so. I'm trying to see if this is going to be a lasting event, and it's all based on what, what, what the other guys had just said. It's the 10-year, it's the Fed, it's the energy space, it's the financials. But let's remember, the reason why we sold off was China. But China was closed when we sold off. Japan was closed when we sold off. So people wind up selling whatever market they can, and they were able to sell the U.S. market. Bounced back the next day, and I believe China was still closed the next day, but it bounced back the next day. So I think people led to, as Tim said, what the Fed was leaning towards themselves. So if, if rates are going to be rising, and if you look at the 10-year, the 10-year is only at one spot four three. We need to get rates back to one spot six, one spot seven, before we really see value return into vogue. But that's where I'm at uh, on my bets as well. I get the absolute levels not high, but the move in today's session was was pretty large when it comes to yields, Guy. I mean, it was a 10 basis point move in the 10-year yield in a single session. Which shouldn't happen. I've said this well. I'm not suggesting I'm right by any stretch of the imagination. But the volatility, you're right just over the last couple of days. But just look over the last year, year and a half, some of the moves we've seen on a percentage basis in what should be the most liquid asset on, on, the, on planet Earth, quite frankly. The moves are astronomical. And I think if the volatility that existed in the bond market were present in the equity market, we talk about it all day long, every single day. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of time before that volatility makes its way in. Steve's right. That 160, 170 level is critical. I happen to think we're going to get there a lot faster than people think. 
The message of the markets in the past two sessions, Tim, seems to be that Fed taper, not a big deal. Global contagion from China and Evergrande, not a big deal or non-existent. I mean, is that a message that, that you believe in or do you just say, you know what, really it is, there is no alternative that is ultimately driving this market? Yes, our friend Tina. I, look, I, I think it's a case where Evergrande is a story that I don't want to minimize the, the potential impact, especially uh, in the EM region. But, but you know, as Joyce Chang is going to come on the show, by the way, who's one of the best and is going to probably outline where you know, sovereign risks are uh, probably not as bad as people think. But that's, that's her call. I, I think you have a case here. Evergrande has been a, a story in slow motion for a long time. Uh, we woke up. Uh, we had a number of dynamics, including coming out of a holiday period in this country. You also had liquidity factors and an expiration at the end of last week. You had a lot of people that have been concerned about the Fed getting a Fed meeting out of the way. Remember, a lot of this move outside of of the, the 52 S&P handles that we got in the last 43 minutes on Monday afternoon. A lot of this move has been really since Jerome Powell got out there yesterday afternoon. I mean, we're talking about almost 3% of that move. That, to me, tells us a lot of this was Fed anxiety as well. So um, seeing rates move higher, very healthy. Reminding that normalized rates coming into this was probably closer to 175 to 2% on the 10-year. Uh, we don't want to see yields in the low you know, 110s, and that was the low that we put in, and, and I think was really the place where we started building back up in a lot of these trades. Banks, look, it, the best combination of exposure to an accelerating economy uh, where I think you've had Decent earnings. I think the, the, the money center banks continue to give uh, capital back to investors in the form of dividends and buybacks, and I think offer the best exposure across the board. And frankly, they've traded the best since their earnings period. At first, they traded down, and as they do, uh, they picked up momentum, as people understand. The banks are actually executing across four or five different business lines. I know I may have used the word contagion, and, and maybe I use it very loosely. I'm not, I don't mean to imply that, that we should be concerned, or maybe the concern is at this point contagion when it comes to systemic risk. But when it comes to a China slowdown then impacting United States and S&P earnings, Pete, should we put that aside? I mean, the thing to remember is that a third of Chinese economic output is driven by the real estate sector in real estate-related industries. Um, Bank of America strategist today said a 90 basis point cut to China GDP next year will equal a 3 percent decline in the S&P 500. That seems like uh, something to be factored in. Well, I, I think it's something that everybody has, is cognizant of, but I think they're also just willing to look forward at, at other ends of the markets right now, Mel. I mean, the velocity of this move just shows you, and, and I think it was very important that Steve pointed out the closures as well. But it gives you a little bit of an idea of what kind of markets that we are in right now. We, I mean, I haven't seen the volatility index move like that in a while. And I certainly haven't seen the velocity of the markets themselves moving the way they have. But it just shows you what investors are looking for. And I don't know whether it's Tina Tim or whatever it might be, but I think there's a lot of different uh, storylines out there that we are constantly looking at and constantly looking forward, quite honestly. I, there's been storyline after storyline. Then we move to the Fed. There's another storyline. And then we'll start with another one very soon. So obviously, it just continues to be like this baton to toss that's been going on and on. But I'll tell you, I am just amazed, Mel, when I look at one day I'm looking at volatility just days ago, trading almost near 29, and here we are back at 18, just that fast. And the way the markets have gone, it's, it, the, the, the volume and the velocity of the move has been incredible. Yeah, a 3% EPS decline on the S&P 500 in case 
I left the EPS part out. That is very important. But, Guy, if somebody told me that a 3% cut to EPS next year in S&P 500 earnings was on the table, that might cause me to reevaluate where we are valued right now. Yeah, I think it's fair. But to Pete's point, there are other storylines as well that probably are overriding everything there. Listen, I would submit um, this might be somewhat orchestrated there to try to hurt our markets here in the United States without question. I mean, listen, basically the Bank of China has effectively said they're going to let this thing, they're going to let, they're going to let I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but let nature run its course, which, by the way, say what you want, good for them. Maybe we should do some more of that here in the United States. But I think there's a longer plan there in terms of lose the battle, win the war type of thing. But again, I think that's just one aspect. I think there's for every one uh, situation in China that we're talking about, there are probably five positive ones here that we don't. And that's what's sort of ruling the day. All right. We've got an earnings alert. Uh, Nike, the stock is moving lower after reporting earnings. The call is underway. Let's get to Sarah Eisen with the details. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. CEO John Donahoe is speaking to investors right now. He kicked off the call by boasting about the more than 20% digital revenue growth, which has really been a source of pride for Nike in the pandemic. He says we're going to be coming out on top of our competitors on digital and on, on, on sales throughout this pandemic. He also, though, did reference the supply chain issues, which is sort of the issue right now with Nike. Donahoe also continued the tradition of Nike executives kicking off the call, talking about some of the highlights in sports over the quarter, how successful the Olympics were. He said if Nike were a country, they'd have 85 golds. The European Championships, Giannis and the Bucks win in the NBA final. The typical shout outs to the athletes. The stock right now is down about a percent. It's come back from the lows after hours. Initially got hit on the revenue miss. $12.2 billion was what they reported. 16% growth from last year, but analysts were looking for a number closer to $12.5 billion. Beneath the surface, Better numbers on China. Sales were up 11 percent. North America, though, fell short a bit. Gross margins were solid, which is important. 46.5, which was better than expected. It speaks to the pricing power that Nike currently has. The brand heat is there. It is very much intact. But the supply chain is the issue. And you saw that in the inventory numbers. Those were flat. And it reflects the two issues that Nike is dealing with. Number one, it sources more than 40 percent of total global production from Vietnam. It uses those factories, and that country has been in a government-mandated shutdown for the last few months. That is certainly going to delay shipments. The other problem is they're just dealing with shipments around the world being delayed and held up at the ports. We expect to hear more from this on the call when the CFO jumps on. That's usually when the company, Melissa, announces guidance. And that's really where we are expecting to see the bulk of the supply chain issues have an impact on their outlook for sales. By all accounts here in these Nike numbers, it's not the demand that's the problem. The brand looks very strong. The numbers look pretty decent. It's just those, what it calls temporary issues that it has to get through, like the Vietnamese production and the delayed shipping. All right. Sarah, keep us posted. Sarah Eisen from the New York Stock Exchange on Nike. Obviously, there's a big facet to this call that we're still waiting for, and that would be the guidance, as Sarah had mentioned, uh, Tim. We talked about these issues, particularly with Vietnam, particularly from sourcing from this part of the world, which is extremely low single-digit vaccination rates, government-mandated shutdown, which Sarah had mentioned, and whether or not these issues will ruin Christmas. And Christmas puts, in, in the holidays, I should say, in general, put a different spin on sales delayed versus denied, there may be a higher ratio of sales denied when it comes to holiday buying. 
Guy's favorite Christmas special is A Year Without a Santa Claus. And, and I, I just think we're, we're, we've already priced that in. Um, I think you have a case here where, uh, look, the, the supply crunch coming from Vietnam is, is a warning we got a while back. I think the stock has, has priced in a lot of that. By the way, technically, so far has, has held that 152 level, which was the June spike. I love the fact, and Sarah highlighted the fact that the, the, the gross margins in this company are, are extraordinary. Their ability to push around suppliers and exact at least as much out of the supply chain as anybody can, but the pricing power is amazing. The digital North America up 43%. Uh, they're also seeing a major recovery in their own physically owned retail. That was up 24%. So there's nothing in these numbers um, that, are, that are bad. And in terms of the guide, look, I think it's out there. And, and relative to other folks, are, are these purchases that would be foregone if they don't arrive under the Christmas tree? Um, I doubt it. Uh, there are a lot of sneakerheads out there. They'll wait and get them in January. Uh, Nike medium term is, is so far ahead of their peers in terms of innovation and their ability to control their distribution. I don't think anyone's coming close anytime soon. Yeah. Grasso? Yeah, the digital revenue uh, basically as a percent of sales is over 20%. It's, it, it's going to be honing in on 25%. The, I chose it last night when we discussed this. I self-would-you-rather, and it said Under Armour. I'll still stick with that because I think Under Armour is going to bounce. Under Armour was up over 3% against Nike, up over 1% today. I wouldn't count Nike out, but I think there's a lot of headwinds that are going to get in the way that un, Under Armour does not have right now. So I would stay clear of Nike just for the uh, near term. Oh, I remember the self, would you rather? It's, it's in my ledger. Believe you me. It's in the ledger. Um, Guy, what do you make so far of the, of the quarter for Nike? I think it's a fine quarter. I mean, they spoke to exactly the problems that they're having, which we've talked about ad nauseum, it seems, and we talked about it last night. Tim is smart to point out that we traded down and held the level that we basically broke up from uh, over the summer. You just got to get comfortable with valuation, which I think you can get comfortable with. I mean, digital sales overall were up 28 percent, I think, year over year. I think it's fine. It's a valuation call. It's probably going to I think it's actually wind up being higher tomorrow on the day. We'll see. But I think the levels that are traded down to off that 175 all time high gives you an opportunity to buy it with a very strong risk reward. Just quickly, Pete, is Nike worth the valuation it's at right now? No. No. <laughs> Wow. That's it. I'm giving it as quick as I can. Yeah. That's Absolutely quick. not. Pete's not on board. Yeah. Okay. Coming up on the brink, new developments this hour in China's Evergrande debt crisis. We are live on the ground in Beijing with the latest. But first, a force awakened, Salesforce rallying as the company gets bullish about the future. We'll tell you how our traders are playing this big move. And don't go anywhere. Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ, is back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. 
Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. For Salesforce topping the tape today, the stock soaring after the company boosted current fiscal year revenue guidance and issued 2023 guidance that is above analyst expectations. Salesforce is up 30% in just the past six months. So, Guy, what do you do with this? Gee, I know you have a great memory, as do our other esteemed members this evening. It was back in August, I believe, that Dan Nathan called this the best looking chart there was. And we posited on the, on the desk one of those nights that, you know, the stock's probably going to trade up to that prior all-time high, 270 and fail, probably pull back to 250 and then you buy it there. Well, almost to the penny, in the words of Carter Braxtonworth, that's what's happened. You have now officially broken out to the upside, and I think this stock is ready to make the next move significantly higher. Now, again, it's a valuation concern, but the way this stock is traded is everything you need to see. I think it continues to go higher. I will ask Pete the same question I asked Pete of Nike, and that is, is Salesforce worth the valuation it's at right now? But you can expound beyond a one-word answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my one word would be yes. And the reason that I say yes is I look at this company and I continue to see what the growth is there, Mel, and it's, it's incredibly impressive. Every single quarter, each and every year, you look at the revenue growth, it just continues to swell up more and more. And that's what I like about it. Also, the acquisition of Slack, I think this is something that's been kind of overlooked a little bit. It was a huge acquisition at the time that they did it. And now I think this is a company that really will fit in well with what Salesforce wants to do in the future. So when I look at it, it does trade at an ungodly P.E. right now. You look at it and you're a little scared off. But it hasn't been scary the entire ride up, and I think there's a lot more room to the upside because it continues to grow in all the different areas that they need to. So for that reason, I'm willing to bite the bullet and go into this very high P.E. name. Yeah. Uh, Grasso, you're into the value trade. If you're a believer of the value trade, if you're a believer in chemicals and that sort of materials, is it time to be in a high valuation stock, even if it seems like it's worth the valuation right now? No, and I, I would say... There's a couple ways you could play this. So the, the names that we always talk about and the names that everyone traffics in, those large cap tech names, those are seen as value. The software names, so I'll go a different direction on this. The IGV, which uh, Salesforce is in, it's the iShares expanded tech software. So I was in this in the low 200s, sold it in the mid 300s, thought I hit a home run. It's trading at 420 now. The main names in this are Microsoft, CRM, Adobe. Those, each of those carry an 8% weighting in the index. So if you're worried specifically about CRM on valuation, 
you could mute a little bit of your risk with the other ones. But the problem is Microsoft seems like it's overvalued <laughs> to a lot of quote unquote value players as well. But I'm just trying to crush a little bit of the risk buy the IGV instead of buying any one of those names singularly. All right. Coming up, we're tracking the after hours action in Costco. The stock is on the move on earnings. The company's conference call is underway. We'll bring you the latest in the quarter. But first, we're following new developments on Chinese property giant Evergrande. Eunice Yoon is live on the ground in Beijing. Eunice. Evergrande's deadline for a dollar bond interest payment has come and gone. What happens next after the break? For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story on Chinese property giant Evergrande. A major debt deadline has come and gone. Let's get to CNBC senior correspondent in Beijing, Eunice Yun, with the latest. Eunice. Thanks, Melissa. Well, as you mentioned, that deadline for the dollar bond interest payment for Evergrande has now passed. And bondholders are now eyeing a 30-day grace period where they hope to have more information uh, because the company needs to settle the payments of interest during that period or face a possible default. Now, uh, the reason why people are somewhat hopeful that uh, perhaps the company would prioritize this is because uh, uh, communicating with bondholders to avoid a near-term default was one of the priorities that the financial regulators had given uh, to the company. And late on Wednesday night, uh, the uh, company's founder had followed through on two other uh, recommendations by financial regulators, and that is uh, one to make sure that you guarantee the homes and also to uh, really give uh, some confidence to wealth investors. So the founder had uh, cobbled together and convened a meeting of 4,000 managers where he said just that, that he uh, wanted the company to go all in, he said, uh, to make sure that the company uh, guaranteed homes, and then secondly, to prioritize wealth investors. Uh, the uh, journal... The Wall Street Journal had also um, um, issued a report which uh, really gave the uh, supported the general impression here that uh, the the uh, company um, wanted or the government really didn't want to step in with its own uh, direct support, but wanted the company to be able to work out uh, some of its own issues uh, in, in order to avoid a, a disorderly. Um, uh, potential uh, ramification on the economy. In fact, the, the journal quoted sources as saying that the central government had told uh, local officials to um, uh, prepare for a possible storm, and by which, uh, by that they, they meant that the government, the local officials, needed to talk to some uh, local 
uh, uh, state as well as uh, private developers to try to uh, look at ways to potentially uh, take over uh, real estate assets and also to prepare for possible um, unrest. And so uh, the, the government had also uh, said that the local authorities should only step in if they really felt that the government, uh, that, the, uh, that Evergrande wasn't able to uh, sort out their issues themselves. And we've started to get some other indications uh, that Evergrande could have some problems. Uh, the EV unit apparently has uh, stopped uh, paying some staff. And um, also, the company has lost a key shareholder, a Chinese estate. Uh, one of the other uh, big property developers here said that uh, they were actually going to sell out about $32 million in shares and that they hope to sell the rest of their stake. Melissa? All right. Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yoon in Beijing uh, for us with the latest. Let's bring in Joyce Chang now, the chair of global research at J.P. Morgan. Joyce, great to have you with us. Well, great to be with you. Are you surprised at all uh, the extent to which the situation has unfolded without the Chinese government formally stepping in? No, I think this is going to be a complex, you know, drawn-out process. I do think it will end up being state-guided, and our baseline scenario you know, is for a debt restructuring, which is reflected in the marketplace right now. But I do think that you know you will have the government taking a role um, in this, in part because if you take a look at the property sector in China as a percentage of GDP, it's about thirty um, percent of GDP. So you know we do see implications to the overall macro outlook for China, where we had already seen um, growth slowing. But I think this is going to be um, a long process. And, you know, there's many different factors that they will need to focus on, um, you know, the workers, um, the, um, the wealth management products, um, what role the banks will take, as well as the creditors. So I don't think you're going to see everything unfold overnight. This is going to be one to watch, um, you know, for for quite some time, just given the size, um, you know, of the um, issuance that they have done in the marketplace. You hit on the aspect that I am particularly interested in, Joyce, and that is the, the importance of the real estate sector to the Chinese economy. Do you think, given the reaction we've seen in the markets, particularly the bounce back in assets in today's session, do you think that that really fully reflects and, and digests the possibility that there could be a hit to the Chinese economy, even if it's through confidence being shaken of the consumer or the retail investor? Well, we already had third quarter growth um, on a quarterly basis in China down to practically zero. Um, and this was in part because of a drop in consumption, also some of the bottleneck constraints, and also the common prosperity financial tightening that had already been underway. So you already had a slowdown in growth um, going on in China, in part because of the Delta variant. So this is um, you know, more um, downward revisions that could be forthcoming. Um, given that the property market is 30% of GDP. But the one thing I do want to stress is we do not see this as a systemic problem to the banking system and to um, the overall property market. If you look at property um, you know, developers, they are only about 7% of total loans. And if you take a look at the size of the total debt um, of Evergrande um, at one2 trillion um, CNY, that's around 41 basis points in total credit. And the loan loss provisions by the banks in the first half of the year was 340 basis points. So talk of a systemic problem, I don't see. Talk of a more of a macro impact given the size of the property market, you know, I do see. And a rising default rate also for um, Chinese high-yield bonds. Hey, Joyce, it's Tim. Not systemic, but, but certainly in terms of 
sovereign risk, macro concerns, um, and, and really just investors' confidence. Uh, obviously, credit investors uh, have a different place uh, on some level in China than equity investors. So, and I wouldn't necessarily ask you to comment on, on each asset class, but, but clearly we've been going from sector to sector in China in terms of the heavy hand from top down. How are you guiding investors in terms of how to price in that risk? Well, this is something, it's not systemic, but it's going to be more industry-wide. So we've seen a 5% default rate in Chinese high-yield bonds, and that default rate is going to go up. I mean, if you model some worst-case scenarios, you can get, you know, very easily get into double-digit levels for what the defaults will be. It's had more of an impact on the equity market than on the bond market. But um, Evergrande is the largest um, non-investment-grade issuer in the offshore um, corporate bond market. So this is going to have some reverberations. The, it's actually been um, less of an impact on the credit markets than one might have thought, given the size of the issuer. So we kind of have to look at what's surprising and what isn't surprising. China had been allowing corporate defaults. Uh, the issue is the size of this one, and it's going to take some time to work out. But we had been taking down the growth forecast um, even before this, but we still have you know, China's growth at above 8% you know, for the full year. Um, but property is 30% um, of GDP. And, um, you know, there will be you know, an impact that will be felt on the macro side. You know, I don't think this kind of contagion really has global ramifications. And those are the kinds of questions we've been getting. Um, you know, and I don't think it's systemic to the banking system in China either. It's not systemic, no global ramifications, uh, Joyce. But do you think that investors here should maybe entertain the idea that S&P 500 earnings could be impacted by a, a deeper slowdown in China than had been forecasted. Well, I, I think that is um, a possibility, but you know we were very comfortable that we actually took up the S&P 500 target to 4,700 and also mm -hmm. took up earnings based on the bottoms-up work we've been doing on the COVID reopening. And because we do see that COVID is um, infection rates are going down in 90% of the states, and I think that is actually you know, a bigger factor to look at than you know what is going on in China. But um, you know we're seeing an impact um, you know in the commodity markets. Um, you know, on the China slowdown, which I think has less to do with Evergrande than um, some of China's policies. And I think the real question for investors right now is that, you know, we're looking at the economic risk, but we also have to look at the policy risk. We have to look at the policy risk from common prosperity, which is a longer term um, agenda for China, how that's going to affect sectors. And it's not just the new economy. Um, a lot of this, I think, will fit, uh, hit consumer protection, social welfare on sectors um, that are very important important structurally to the middle class as far as the cost structure. It's focused on disposable income. Mm -hmm. So you can see that still having ramifications you know, apart from Evergrande. So right. I don't think this is over. This is a longer term issue to watch. Joyce, great to have you with us. Thanks so great much. Bye -bye. Joyce Chang, JP Morgan. Pete Najeri in China. Is it a no touch in your view for all the reasons that Joyce had elaborated on? Long list. I it is a long list, but I but I I happen to agree with most of what she was laying out there for us. And one of those uh, uh, parts that she laid out was COVID getting better here. The the improvements we're seeing in some of the numbers uh, across the United States. So that part uh, makes me feel a little bit better. I think it's a no touch, Mel. Um, I've said that for a while now, and a lot of that has to do with not what's been going on of late. But if you look back and you see what's been going on with the government involvement and everything else. It just makes me very nervous for those equities themselves, the stocks. So I've literally just stopped all Chinese stocks that I'm trading. I'll trade the options in them, 
but the stocks I just don't do not feel comfortable at night anymore because of situations that can happen that we have absolutely no control over whatsoever. It's an interesting world in which we live in, Tim, when we can say that coming off of the bottom for COVID is a stronger impact, a stronger lift to the market than the downward pressure that could be put from a China slowdown that is deeper than we all thought would be. Yes, but but again, I think we've priced in you know, some of the pain from, uh, I think, the market's perspective in the last three to six months has been coming from a China slowdown uh, and China uh, not only clamping down and then some of these column policy risks. So, I, you know, I, I do think ultimately in the same way that China was an eye into the recovery. Remember when we were looking to China also uh, with, with COVID as being the place where we saw, started to see reopening and, and, and began to measure that. You know, I think we, we've seen that throughout the last year and a half that, mm-hmm. that COVID has been the headwind to follow. China, to the extent that it would have been unthinkable to think of flat GDP growth in China, even for a quarter, is something that markets could get through. Uh, I think we're through that. And, and I think, if anything, again, go back to what trades make sense here now because of what we've seen out of China and even Evergrande. Look, the transmission mechanism has been commodities. And, and that is something that I think is giving you a major opportunity once this dust settles. And even though Evergrande, as, as was pointed out, will take a long time to sort, uh, I think a lot of the pain in the commodity sector over the last three weeks is well overdone. All right. Coming up, we are all over the after-hours action in Costco. The stock is on the move after reporting earnings. We've got the details uh, straight ahead. But first, grab some peanuts and Cracker Jack. Steve taking the mound for a fast pitch. He says this fitness stock is about to do some heavy lifting. The name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. CNBC's Delivering Alpha is less than a week away. Join the biggest names in investing at this can't-miss virtual event. It's not too late to sign up. Register right now at DeliveringAlpha.com. Well, it's time to get off that couch and get moving because Steve says this fitness stock is about to pump higher. He's taking the mound for a fast pitch. So, Steve, take it away. All right. So let's, let's start off with a price target recently. Roth Capital Partners put a $100 price target. That's about a 20% upside from where it's at now. They come to that level based on a 29 times 2023 EBITDA, and I don't disagree with them. But anecdotally, when we're all talking to our neighbors, what do they want to do? They want to get out of the house. They're all on their Pelotons. I'm sure two or three of the guys on the desk uh, tonight have Pelotons. I know Guy does. I know he loves his. But ultimately, people want to get back to a sense of normalcy. They want to get back to some social life in the gym. And quite frankly, they want to get away from their families in some cases because they've seen nothing but their families for the last two years. So having said that, technicals would be the the next bullet point. It's above all its moving averages. You have the near-term or the shorter-term moving averages moving up. That's always a bullish sign. And then you also have new products that they're coming out with. So if you want to sit at home or if Delta becomes more of an issue, you're going to have classes that you can dial into virtually. Now let's look at membership. Standard, $10 a month. Black card, $22.99 a month. That $22.99 comes with those virtual classes in addition to it. They've also have a setback and not got involved with meal plans, and any other uh, ancillary things that they could sell to the gym community. That's another thing that could move the needle. And, and then the last thing, 
These guys are back almost to pre-COVID levels. So the gyms are flourishing while other gyms closed. All right, um, time to vote. Are you buying Steve's pitch on Planet Fitness? Uh, Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, I think this was a, a very buff, buff presentation. And this is judgment free, Steve. I'm a buyer. <laughs> Um, I, I think ultimately the membership trends are the keys here. I don't know how anybody makes money uh, at 10 bucks a month, uh, but these guys have shown that they're actually starting to see some growth. And, and I do agree with some of those broader macro trends. So uh, the chart's decent, and it's also had reset expectations. All right. Uh, Pete, what do you say? I'm going to the no judgment zone, and I'm going to tell Steve that's a, that's a great pitch. I like what he had to say. And I'll tell Tim, the reason they have $10 and they can make money is people forget about it and they don't go and they still want to hold on to it because it's only 10 bucks. It's easy. So that's how they grow so fast. It's amazing. <laughs> Guy. Uh, can you read my smart board for me, uh, please, me Melissa? Um, Malms, how many biscuits are you working out with? Hashtag four or five, <laughs> oh, 45 pounds. <laughs> Biscuits. Biscuits. <laughs> what, well, what as is... usual, Steve is tougher than Biscuits. the rest. Morgan Stanley put a $93 price target. Go back to that quarter. I think they reported in August. Very good. I think the stock breaks out. Well done, Steve. The, the whiteboard had a cue. Biscuits. <laughs> anyway, I was reading the board. Aside. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, don't forget to vote. We got head to our Twitter poll. We do want to check out the move in Nike. This just broke. Nike is cutting its full year revenue forecast, saying we now expect this will be uh, 22, 22 revenue to grow mid single digits versus the prior year versus our prior guidance of a low double digit growth due solely to the supply chain impact specifically for Q2. We expect revenue growth to be flat to down low single digits versus the prior year. They also talked about their experience with COVID-related factory closures, um, saying that in, in that experience, they have learned that ramping those factories back up once you reopen often takes longer than expected as well. So there could be delays even when those government-mandated shutdowns are lifted, which, by the way, have meant the closure of all of its footwear factories. So it's not producing any footwear uh, in Vietnam. Tim Seymour, I'll go to you as a shareholder. What do you make of this? Again, let's let to see where the market puts this stock. I, I think a downgrade by Nike is not something you get. Uh, and it's something that's a little shocking to hear, except for the fact that there's nothing here we haven't heard already. Um, I think you have a case here where Investors can focus on the profitability of the business, the operating margins, and, and the sense that these guys are really in control of their destiny. So um, this is a headline that, that's on, on top of other headlines. The, shot, the stock was very resilient in the after hours uh, on the first announcement. So let's see where we go. Yeah, this is about where the level of the stock was immediately after earnings, Pete. So I'll go back to you in terms of what you think of the, the action, the stock, and what that tells us. Yeah, you know, and this is not something people wanted to hear. And to Tim's point, I think it, it, it's not going to last forever, Mel, but I still, I still have the view of I look at the, you know, what they're able to do, and obviously supply chain issues have not been resolved, and we don't know exactly, as you were just stating, when will that happen and at what pace will that happen. I think for all those reasons, you look at a stock that's trading, what, a 40-plus multiple, I think it has a little bit more room to the downside for sure. And it's coming off the lows right now as we speak, Guy. No, Pete brought it up before. I mean, he's concerned about valuation, rightly so. I happen to think that this is the level where, you know, we this is where we took off from many months ago. This is where we should hold now. So I think a lot of this news we probably surmised already. 
Let's see how it trades tomorrow. Yep. We've got another earnings alert to hit. Costco's on the move on its results. Let's get to Courtney Reagan with the details. Court. Hi, Melissa. So it takes a lot to move the consumer staple stock. Even good reports don't often do it. And remember, Costco still releases monthly sales. So the street gets a pretty good idea for the quarter as it proceeds. Shares are higher by about seven tenths of a percent right now. Still, total revenues came in higher than expected. Earnings beat by a decent margin and total comps grew more than 15 percent in the fourth quarter with e-commerce up more than 11 percent. Jewelry was strong. The wholesaler even, quote, sold a couple rings in the $100,000 range, according to the CFO. Home furnishings, pharmacy, sporting goods, electronics, those were all categories that were also strong. And then on the call, CFO Richard Galanti did talk about the ongoing supply chain challenges and delays and the higher costs from both materials as well as containers and freight. He said he estimated inflation overall between three and a half and four and a half percent range. That's up from one to one and a half percent in March and up from two and a half to three and a half percent in May. Price increases include uh, either Costco or vendors paying two to six times more for containers right now. Costco says it's chartered three ocean vessels for next year and leased several thousand containers to transport goods from Asia to the U.S. and Canada on those vessels. By category inflation, Galanti provided some information here, some color. He said paper pulp is up to four to eight percent. Plastics and resin increases on items like pet products, trash bags, plastic plates, those are up five to 11 percent. Three to 10 percent increases on certain apparel items. And then oil, coffee, nuts, those costs remain at five-year highs. Fresh food inflation is mid to high single digits. So a lot of color there, but uh, investors not dissuaded here. As you can see, shares are slightly higher, which is pretty much usually as good as it gets for a report out of Costco. Melissa? Those, those are all things in, in everybody's pantry, Courtney. And so I'm wondering, have they passed yep. pass on price increases to combat things like a 4 to 8% increase in paper pulp prices? Right. So Galanti sort of says, look, we want to be the last people to raise those those price increases and we want to be the first ones to cut the prices when we're able to. But we still have to make thoughtful choices about the business. So I think that is his way of saying, yes, some price increases are being passed on, uh, but we're doing our best to mitigate the cost, which is why I think that they decided to charter their own vessels for next year and sort of take matters into their own hands when it comes to costs and potential delays. All right. Court, thanks. Courtney Reagan on Costco. Thanks. Guy, you know, there are a couple things in there that, that caught my attention. That is a notion that Costco itself will bear the brunt of those price increases where it can, which means a consumer won't feel that inflation, which is, which is good news, presumably, although that is a weight on margins. The other thing is that he would look to roll back price increases when they can, which is not something you assume at all. <laughs> Yeah, they're, say, they're saying all the right things. I'll tell you, you didn't see it this quarter in terms of operating margins because they came in at 3.63%, which was better than the street was looking for. So for a quarter, at least, they didn't pass them on. But we will see. I'll take them at their word. This comes down to the same thing we've talked about seemingly all show. Are you comfortable with the valuation? You know, currently trading 38 times next year's numbers. I will say for a property like this, I am because memberships don't go away. That's a huge recurring revenue stream, and they operate their business really well. And Pete can speak to it because he spends hours there on the weekends. I mean, he'll stroll through those aisles like he's running for governor, which he may be doing, by the way. So I stay with Costco here. I think a lot of people think he was governor when he's strolling through the Costco aisles. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you like the stock? <laughs> 
You know, I like this stock. Yes, it does feel incredibly stretched, but that has not stopped this stock uh, at all. As a matter of fact, it was down at 317 back in March. And take a look at it now. It's 455. I mean, this is a, an amazing company. They, they pass along things when they can. I will say this. I, I, I think they will raise those prices to make up for some of this. Now, the real question is, will they be of their word and, not a, and cut those prices back down? I'm not so sure about that. All right. Coming up, it is game on. International game technology rallying today, and option traders are doubling down on this name. We've got the trade next. But first, as we head to break, a message from former United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz as CNBC celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month. The way to build the next generation of Latino leaders is frankly to groom them through a pipeline. You have to specifically focus on the recruitment of the talent and then the professional development. And then while inside the company, making them feel like they have value and they have equal access to the top. And that just takes a lot of effort and work and focus from the senior most leaders in the corporation to make sure they give people from the underrepresented minority community a chance. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of sports betting stock, International Game Technology, jumping after Credit Suisse raised its price target on the name. Let's bring in Mike Coe because he also spotted a big bet on IGT in the options market. Mike, what'd you see? We saw 14 times the average daily call volume when we saw calls outpacing puts by about 8 to 1. All of that, the result of a trader purchasing 20,000 of the 26-33 November call spread, spending just under $1.40 a contract. It looks like this trader is adjusting an earlier position that they had in the 23-30 call spreads, also expiring in November, taking some profits on today's bounce, but pressing into a larger upside trade going out to November expiration. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next is Planet Fitness a buy. We got the results from Steve's fast pitch. Next, plus final trades. Let's get to the poll results. Were you buying your? Nope, you were not. You were clearly not buying Steve's pitch on Planet Fitness. 68% said no. Final trade time, Steve. Planet. Mic drop. Tim. Two biscuits aside, Mel. Twitter going all the way. This quits. Steve. <laughs> Some flowing bisquits. Um, I'm going to give you ConocoPhillips. I think it's going a lot higher. Not a word. Die. Life's a zero-sum game. MetLife. Uh, M-E-T goes up. See you tomorrow for more Fast. Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.